Hey, Liz. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. So excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. So I want to talk a lot about your new book, Big Feelings, um, which is fantastic. I really enjoyed reading it. One of those books that um, has lots of great insights and ideas, but it's just a real pleasure to read too. So uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that at some point. Um, writing, it's, it's always, we can kind of nerd out on that a little bit. That'd be fun. But I think a place to start would be, you know, you, you, you guys opened the book um, talking about you and your co-author Molly's, some of your own kind of emotional struggles, especially during COVID and lockdown. And in that, it, towards the end of that section, there was a, a bit that kind of caught my eye that I want to, I want to chat with you about. You said, we each tried to cope, but we still felt pummeled by emotions. At times, our efforts even seemed to backfire. So maybe coping is kind of an interesting place to start this conversation. It's kind of a tricky term. So I, I'm, I'm curious just to hear your thoughts on, on this concept of coping, because um, I think a lot of it, it gets used in casual conversation all the time, but, but what do we really mean by, by coping? And yeah, as you alluded to, it can be sort of a double-edged sword, I think. Um, so talk a little bit about how you think about this idea of coping with, with difficult emotions or big feelings. Yeah, I, it means so many different things to different people. And like you mentioned, it's used it's similar to burnout and resilience where just who knows what someone <laughs> means when they're saying these words. Um, I think the sort of darker side of coping is when it puts the onus on the individual to have it together and to just be fine no matter what. Um, and I think it, that is when coping advice tends to veer more towards do a gratitude journal, meditate daily, go for a walk outside, those are all great. Those are, can be really helpful. And I think are actually wonderful to invest in as mental health practices. But when you're really going through a challenging time, so what I write about in the intro is I was losing my father-in-law to his 10-year battle with cancer. And that's just brutal. Like there's no silver lining. There's no, you know, secret, meaningful upside. It's just like, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have him go through this. And so in those situations, I think often we're told to cope as a way of people saying, why don't you just keep it together in moments when you just can't, you know? And, and I think that's when the definition of coping, I would like to expand it to things like coping in this moment means breathing through the minute and getting to the next minute. Um, I think sometimes that's really what it comes down to. It's not this aspirational, be a positive person, be a ray of shining light for the world. It's you need to survive through this until you get to a place where you can maybe start to pick out some meaning or you can even get out of bed and lift your hand to write the gratitude journal because there just are moments in life when that is not possible for someone and they just need something else. Yeah. Talk about the backfire part a little bit, because that's one of the things as a, as a therapist that I would encounter a lot is that people would come into therapy and almost the, the first job of therapy, the first six months of therapy might be, what are all the ways where you are understandably trying to cope with whatever kind of difficult experience you're happening, but usually through no fault of your own, that coping is actually backfiring and making things worse. So before we learn something new, it's actually kind of about unlearning the stuff that's been unhelpful. And there's so much advice about how to cope with difficult stuff that it's, it's hard to sort of sort the wheat from the chaff. So, so anyway, back to this idea of coping backfire. Can you give sort of an example or talk through how that might look? And then what the, what the alternative, when you're thinking about a more expanded definition of coping, what that might look like? 
Yeah. So when it backfires and this happened to both me and to Molly was, so for me, I had read, you know, I thought maybe I was overwhelmed by work and I needed to detach. So I set aside a day every weekend when I would not check any devices. And I found that extremely anxiety inducing. <laughs> I would just sit there and be like, oh my God, my inbox is going to be a disaster tomorrow. I'm not responding to these texts. And then Molly was going through the throes of, I mean, she had chronic pain issues. She was having suicidal thoughts and she started journaling. And when she saw her situation written out in front of her, that was actually more depressing to her than if she weren't verbalizing it and writing it down. So I think what went wrong in both of those situations is that we took a very rigid stance towards the advice as opposed to what we try to do in the book is say, here are a range of different things. They might be useful to you. They might not. They might be useful to you in some moments of your life and not in others. But it's really about trying a few things and listening to how it makes you feel. And if it doesn't make you feel better, if it feels like it's backfiring, then don't do it anymore, right? I should have just said, it's actually not healthy for me to not be on email. Maybe it's better to check it in the morning and check it at night so I don't have it buzzing around my head all day because that's still not disconnecting whatsoever. Um, so I think, and that's again where this, a lot of self-help is presented as here, do these five things and you'll be fine. And that's just not, that's not how anything works in life when it comes to achieving any goals. You have to figure out what works for you. Yeah. I love that. It makes me think I was just, so the last podcast I recorded, I haven't posted it yet, but was with Steve Hayes, who's the founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And I was asking him about sort of how he sees the future of, of sort of mental health and, and emotional well-being and, and all that kind of stuff going in the future. And it, essentially his answer was personalized emotional health. Right? We've got yeah. all these theories. We have so many good ideas from a variety of disciplines and, and a lot of bad ideas. Um, but in some ways, more good ideas is not what we need. It's more of a matching problem. We just have to figure out right, how do individuals find the solution that works best for them in their unique kind of context, whether that's their own biological, cultural context, their work context, their interpersonal context, whatever it is. So I love, I love that message in your, and the book really, as you kind of pointed out, the book really bears that out, right? It's, it's just full of, it's presented in a very, um, here's a lot of options. Some may be, some may work, some may not. Um, but it's about yeah. kind of figuring out what works for you. I love that too. And it's, it came up in our approach to, so we wrote a couple of years ago, a book called no hard feelings, which is all about emotions at work. And in that one, because it was workplace focused and we had in mind this very skeptical, chief financial officer that doesn't care about feelings. It's like, why should I care? We really tried to find advice that was rigorously tested and proven out by randomized control trials, like the most, you know, academic studies possible. And then in this book, and then we, you know, did workshops and have talked to so many people over the years since that book came out. And in this book, which looks at life and work, which there's not really a distinction for many of us anymore. Um, I personally took a step back from that uh, because to your point, it was, hey, this is a piece of advice. No, it hasn't been tested, but I personally found it to be the most helpful thing in this very dark moment. And if it's helpful to you, I'm just going to share it. And, you know, that's, I think 
it's kind of a placebo effect type thing. Maybe, you know, if it, if it makes you feel better and it's not, you're not harming yourself and you're not harming others, who cares if it's, you know, been proven by 60,000 people taking a test in a room somewhere, (laughs) just like you feel better. You feel like you can move through the day. That's really what the goal here is. Yeah. And who's to say it's, I mean, there, there are an infinite number of things that are perfectly valid and helpful that, you know, science has just yet to elucidate why or to show right. why the mechanism is there. So I think there's plenty of things, right, that could be, um, that are extremely helpful and it might feel like a placebo effect, but maybe that's just because the, those researchers haven't, haven't gotten around to <laughs> explaining why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's, I, I want to kind of dive into the sort of the meat um, of the book. And it's, so there are essentially these kind of seven big feelings that you guys highlight. Obviously it's not all the feeling we have. There's a you know, bajillion different feelings we all experience, but you guys kind of pull out seven really big ones. Um, uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. So before we dive into these specifically on a high level, I'm really curious about the term feelings. So that speaking of, you know, we talked about this with coping a little bit, but it's such a, it's, you're talking about these big feelings, but it's a big term, right? The, the feelings and it, it kind of does a lot of work. So tell me about the choice. And I know you used it in the past book as well, but why that term feelings instead of say emotions or like what, what's sort of the thinking behind using that term specifically? Yeah. Uh, it's the same thinking between why we pick those seven words, because they're also not all necessarily feelings. Um, but Feelings was what people seem to respond to the most. So it's a little bit more colloquial than emotions. It feels slightly less academic. I think it just makes, which is our goal for all of this, is it makes it feel engaging and like it's your friends talking to you as opposed to a researcher who might not fully understand. Um, Not this is, I'm not throwing researchers under the bus, (laughs) but I think there's a difference between, you know, an academic paper in a journal and then a book that's more um, story-based and where people are really opening up about their feelings. And it's just a very different thing. And we wanted to go for the second. And this is also how we actually chose those seven concepts, I'll say, that you mentioned. They're more emotional states. So for example, comparison, the real emotion there is envy or sometimes jealousy. Um, But when we spoke, we surveyed about 1,500 people from all different backgrounds all around the world, different ages. And it was interesting when we asked them about envy, people were sort of interested, but then when we flipped it and said, well, do you compare yourself to others? It was like this outpouring of, oh my gosh, I struggle with this so much. And so I think within that, it was, it was really interesting to watch because I think it highlights how stigmatized some of these emotions are that people were definitely experiencing envy, but were either hadn't identified that yet within themselves or were reluctant to share. But then when it was cased in this slightly more palatable comparison concept, then they, you know, they opened up and it was like, yes, this is hundred percent me. How do I move through this perfectionism? Same thing. Um, where I think we, the emotions were like exhaustion or fear of failure or fear was another one. And none of those really got people as excited or elicited the same response as perfectionism. I love that. Just, I mean, strategically, it's great because it's like a good teacher. You sort of meet people where they are and then you lead them to, you know, someplace kind of helpful or or new or different or, but meeting them where they are is, I think is so important. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
that's huge. And and then so while we're on comparison and and envy, like let's talk about that because you you bring up two really interesting distinctions um, around this kind of set of of emotions or feelings. The first is between jealousy and envy, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then even between when talking about envy, benign and malicious envy. Right. Um, so I think I'm I'm curious to hear you talk a little about this because I I I have this sort of colloquial kind of category of emotions that I call icky emotions, where there, there's all sorts of difficult emotions, sadness, anxiety, whatever, but there's certain ones. And I think envy, like uh, resentment would be another one. They're these ones that just feel gross. Like I should not feel this. Like it's not okay for me to feel this. Like only like bad, weird people feel this. There's something wrong with me because I'm feeling that. And it's just, it just seems like in general, people, you say like, oh no, 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 jealousy. No, I'm not supposed to feel jealous or regret is maybe another one. Oh no, I'm not supposed to feel any regret. So Talk about that a little bit. How do you think about jealousy versus envy? And then this kind of benign versus malicious envy? Because I think this is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is it's so also in these people we surveyed, almost every single person said they had heard these emotions or concepts described as bad or negative. And almost every single person had also experienced at least one within the last month. Wow. So yeah. it's, you know. I think hopefully that starts to point at the stigma that we want to shed. Um, but to get specifically to envy versus jealousy. So envy is when you see, or the way that we look at it, which is based on research, um, is when you see something that someone has and you really admire it or you kind of long for it. Jealousy is the more resentment side of it, which is you wish you had it and that they didn't, or you begrudge them for having something that you don't have. And so that's when it becomes more poisonous because you're actually, there's a lot of spite involved in that and it feels physically different in your body. Um, so one, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, one example is like, I think Rihanna is amazing. <laughs> when I see her in these outfits, which is like, oh, she's so cool. And I'm envious, you know, like, I just, I wish I was that cool. But then I had a friend uh, a couple of years ago who got this amazing promotion and is in a similar field. And yeah, like we're good friends. And I still had this moment of like, how come she got this and I didn't, you know, and that was, that's jealousy, um, which is a little more poisonous. And then malicious and benign is that difference is benign is this, I am envious and therefore I am actually motivated, you know, so I see Rihanna and I'm motivated. Maybe I should take some more risks with my outfits and put on some makeup because I just love what she's doing and I want to emulate it. That's benign. And then malicious would be, I don't want Rihanna in this world. I want it to be me. Um, and that's, again, it's, I say it's more self-destructive because you're not it doesn't lead you to take positive actions. Um, you're not learning from it. You're just kind of sitting with it and resenting someone else as opposed to figuring out how you might move to a place where you are in more of a position uh, that's similar to that person whose life you really want. Yeah, super helpful. One of the things, by the way, one of the things I really appreciate about, about I mean, in general, you guys, when you guys, uh, in all sorts of stuff you've written, but especially in this book, you're really careful not to use those terms like negative emotions, right? It's, it's a difficult feeling which I think is, I used to kind of roll my eyes at that stuff, but more and more having worked with people over and over, like, I think that, I think it really matters. I think it's terrible <laughs> that we sort of enculturate people into thinking of certain emotions as bad, negative, right? And then other ones as good or positive. And it just, yeah, for, that's, that's a whole other discussion, but I think it's, it's wonderful that you guys are starting to be a little bit more kind of careful about how we talk about it. And, and, and jealousy and envy are, are good examples of this too, because 
in, in, in both of those cases, the, the emotion, it's the feeling itself, right. Might be difficult, but that's not necessarily what's good or bad. It, it's sort of right. what you do with it, whether you start ruminating on like how that person doesn't deserve it. Now you do deserve it or, or your actions, like you start getting passive aggressive with somebody like those things can be good or bad. Right. But the feel, the emotion itself, emotion, they can't be good or bad. Right? Yeah, <laughs> they are, they are yeah. what they are. <laughs> yeah. And there's so much research that shows, I think this, there's a study that came out of UC Berkeley that I love, which is essentially, I think they write feeling bad about feeling bad only makes you feel really, really bad. <laughs> so it's, you know, to, to even every emotion contains some kind of information. We evolved to have them. If there was a lion running towards you, you better feel fear. Otherwise you're not going to run away. Um, and so probably the people that didn't feel fear, they didn't get to pass their genes onto the next generation. And so when we label something as bad, we step away from it. I think we have this initial, this reaction of suppress it, move away. I don't want to feel this. And then you're also not learning what it might be signaling to you. I love that. I, I think some, my, maybe my favorite metaphor in all, in all of mental health is the idea of don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> so oh, yeah. you know, your emotions are sending a message just because you don't like the message doesn't mean yeah. <laughs> you need to get rid of the messenger, right? They're just delivering the right. message. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's, okay. So I want to dive into a few of these, a few more, we, we, we hit comparison because you brought it up, but a few more of these big feelings that you guys talk about, because they, they just brought up some really interesting things for me. So the first one is uncertainty. You guys have a great, um, this line that I'm, I'm going to quote from you here. While the forces that cause uncertainty and anxiety are often not your fault, how you respond is your responsibility. Now that's, there's a lot in that. That's like, a, that's a really big sentence, I think, <laughs> because in part, because it's my experience in just in the field and sort of the, in mental health or emotional well-being generally, personal responsibility is a tricky topic. Um, I think because part of the way I think about it is if you emphasize it too much, right? If you kind of over-index on responsibility, it often devolves into this sort of simplistic messaging of everyone just needs to kind of pick themselves up by the bootstraps, get your shit together. You know, what's your problem? Um, but if you de-emphasize it too much, it, it can initially feel a little relieving of like, oh, this stuff is happening. It's not my fault, but it's kind of disempowering too, because it makes you feel like there's nothing you can do about it. So yeah, this is a huge question and it's kind of an unfairly huge question to ask back at you, but, but I'd love to get your take on like, how can we, yeah, how can we start to have better conversations about the role of responsibility in, in mental health? Yeah, it's so hard uh, to, to figure out what the right path forward here is or how to balance those two sides that you, that you just mentioned. Um, the way that we talk about it in the book, which is what we finally landed on, was there are steps that you should try to take to make yourself feel better. The impact that those steps will have, whether you feel able to take those steps, are very um, it's determined by your environment. So we say that it is much, much easier to be resilient if you're in a situation that makes it easy for you to be resilient. So specific examples of this, I mean, in early 2020, when the pandemic hit, resilience became this like 
you know, the antidote to everything. And I think especially was used by institutions and organizations as forcing the responsibility too much on the individual of, oh, it's a global pandemic. And you're, a, you know, you're a mom or a dad and you have small children and you're all in your studio apartment and you're trying to sleep and do your work and do everything. Resilience, just try some resilience. You'll be fine. You know, and that's, that's an example of like, okay, that is not helpful whatsoever. So the combination there would be, you know, the organization giving that person the flexibility they need, trying to figure out some kind of childcare support. Um, and then the person at home also speaking with their spouse or trying to figure out what can they do on a daily basis? Like, can they shift their schedule? But it should be this joint effort. Um, and so that's also in a lot of the advice that we give in the book, especially in the burnout chapter, we'll say things like, here are a couple of things that you can do that might help you feel better and move through burnout or kind of get your sense of self back. However, if you're trying these things and nothing is working, you might need a new job. And so it's, it's putting in the effort, taking some personal responsibility, but then continuing to check in with yourself and see, you know, you uh, read this quote recently on Twitter, or Instagram or something, <laughs> but it was like, you can't heal in the place that hurts you. Um, and so I think that to me summarizes it pretty nicely, which is there are definitely things that you should try to invest in to heal yourself. But if it's just not working, or you really feel like you're being blocked by a person, by a culture, by whatever it might be around you, it might be more systemic and you might need to go somewhere else. Yeah. I, the, um, punching bag example, I always think of when I think of this is some, you know, like a year or two ago, I saw this thing, I think it was on social media, but as part of their like workplace well-being initiative, Amazon introduced these things called Zen booths, which are like the, literally <laughs> these like phone booths that they put like on their warehouse floors <laughs> where you go in and you like listen to some like mindfulness meditation for 15 minutes and then you yeah. out again and like, yeah. oh my God, like the, the reaction with the like visceral reaction to something like that, to thinking like that's the solution to, to work. Yeah. Um, you just need to, you know, listen to some more meditation and then you'll be, then you'll be resilient and, um, so, yeah. So, and you know, whatever people are trying and, and maybe it was very well intentioned. Um, but let, let me ask, so in your experience, and I know you, you do a lot of work with organizations. Um, do you, does an example come to mind? Like what's the opposite of that on the other end of the spectrum from the Amazon, like Zen booth thing, <laughs> what are some really like interesting or creative ways that you found where, where organizations make kind of real structural or environmental changes to help like their employees with their mental health. Um, to, I don't know if anything comes to mind. Yeah. So a lot of organizations have implemented recharge days where it's just the whole company takes a day off it's paid. Um, and I think what's really nice about that is if you just tell someone to take the day off, they're probably still getting inundated with emails and it's not really a day off. So by making it a full company thing, um, that is, I think that, that helps a lot. There's also some cool collective practices that I've heard teams do. So the manager will start off every meeting with a small check-in. So for example, it might be red, yellow, green. Everyone go around and share how you are. It can be your capacity, how you're feeling. And if someone's red, it opens a space for them to say, I just have so much on my plate. And then the team can jump in and say like, okay, how can we help you? How can we help reprioritize some things? What can we take off your plate? Obviously, to 
do that, for that to work, you need to have established a culture of psychological safety. You, you know, if you're like at a, you know, like a Amazon-esque workhouse place, people are probably gonna be like green, 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 green. <laughs> Let's go back to work. Um, but I think to me, we also, you know, I, I think it's the organization creating space for managers to give people the support they need in those really hard moments. So the example, I mean, what I, the example to me of this done just so well was when my father-in-law in the last couple of days of his life, he had a stroke. And so I was at his house helping out because he could no longer move. And it was, I was just running around taking care of logistics. And then I had a one-on-one with my manager and I remember going into a room and closing the door. And it was the first time that I had just sat down and kind of been alone in a couple of days. And so I log in and she asked her standard, like, how are you doing? And I completely lost it. Like it was you know, the kind of sobbing where like, you're not making sound. It, I just couldn't stop. And so I turned my mic off and my camera off. And she was like, get off the call, you know, paint, like slack me when you, when you <laughs> sort of when you want to. Yeah. Um, and so then when I finally sent her a message, of, you know, 15 minutes later, I said, like, I think I can talk now, but maybe we could talk on the phone. She said, you know, I thought about it and just take the week off. And like, if you need bereavement leave, there's a two week policy. Um, just let me know if you need to extend that week, but I don't, you don't need to work. You don't need to worry about anything. I don't want to see you online. And to me, that was, um, you know, it's, it's not, it wasn't like, here's the HR form and you have to come to me and ask. It was just like, clearly that's what I needed. And it was just no questions asked given to me. Um, and so I think, and that's only because I work at an organization where she felt like she could also do that. Like no one was going to punish her. She would have the executive team support. Um, and so that to me is just an example of, and then, yeah, it was, I had to take bereavement leave. And when I came back, it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel great, but I felt, I, I just like would not have been an effective employee in that time. And so I felt much better. Like I just, I felt comforted in that I had been there for my family and was able to be present and take care of a bunch of logistics. Um, so it's also to the skeptics, you know, this is what matters for performance long-term and retention. And I just have never forgotten that as an example of just really wonderful management. Yeah. I love that. I, and it's, a, it's such a good example too, of how that when we think about well-being and, and what like promotes resilience or, or, emotional health or in any context, it's always so the right, it turns out like the right answer is always so communal. It seems to me like it involves each other, like working together on some level. And I, I, sometimes I worry about like my own field of psycho, like psychotherapy. It's such an, it's such an individual way of looking at things. Like the level of analysis is the individual, right? And it's, it's like two people at most doing stuff for an hour a week. And then everything else, it's you on your own. Um, and I, yeah, I worry sometimes that that, that has so influenced just mental health and, and emotional well-being, like how we think about it on these, like very, it's like almost in our cultural DNA that well-being is this individual thing when, when really like we are so social and there is that individual responsibility, of course, like age personal agency matters a lot, 
but I, I just like, we miss it. <laughs> so it's the, that's the perfect counter example to the Zen booth, right? Where you go lock yourself away in a little box. Right. And, <laughs> right. and like meditating, yeah. like, that's going to fix everything. No, yeah, go you have take like care a, of your well-being alone in a corner. Where yeah, we can't see you. <laughs> bananas, right? And what you just said, like the example was, it was like a meaningful human connection with somebody yeah. who like was just being human with you. Um, and that, that that's the thing that surfaced to you when I asked you about like, what's the opposite? Um, yeah, I just think that's, that's so huge. Um, what a great example. So let, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we should talk about burnout. Um, but I, I, I go back and forth on whether, is this the most important topic of our time or I'm so sick of hearing about burnout, like, cause it's <laughs> yeah. everywhere, right? Like, I don't want to talk about it, but I do think we need to talk about it. Um, cause I just think it's, yeah, it's such a pervasive thing, but I, I want to talk about what you guys take some interesting angles on it in the book. And, and one of them, um, again, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you a little bit. Cause I, I think you guys express this really well, but you say one of the most dangerous aspects of burnout is that it impacts self-awareness when you're in it, you're fueled by adrenaline. And the momentum feels so exhilarating that you end up adding more and more to your plate. So I want to talk a little about this connection between um, burnout and self-awareness, because that's not, it's, it's, it's kind of a non-obvious point. Um, and it, it strikes me that obviously over the last few years, more and more, we are all very, we're burnout aware, <laughs> like we're all aware of how burnt out we are, but we're ironically, we're kind of lacking in self-awareness about our burnout is kind of how I think about it. Um, so in like, yeah, just talk about this connection a little bit between like how, why is self-awareness so important for burnout? Why does burnout get in the way of us being self-aware about the fact that we're burnt out? It kind of, yeah. Can you untangle that? Yeah. It's, it's intriguing, yeah. but it's complicated. Yeah. I think some of it is that when people talk about burnout, they usually bring it up in the context of you know, I, I became so sick that I couldn't work or I was having chronic pain and I had to take time off of work. And that's sort of like the end stage of burnout. So we spoke to um, a, a consultant who, who coaches people who are experiencing burnout. And he said, burnout, actually, at first, it's going to tap you on the shoulder with a feather many, many times, and then it will hit you with a bus. And your job is to acknowledge it and recognize when it's tapping you on the shoulder with a feather. And so, so many people that we spoke with who did end up sort of hitting that wall and getting really sick or just having to you know, take time off, when they looked back, they were like, yeah, I was completely overwhelmed. But it was this like, and I think this is, we, we you know, when you think about things that society praises us for, it is the getting a speaking engagement, getting promoted, getting, being out there. Society's never going to give you a gold star for lying in your bed all day watching Netflix, right? That's sort of like a shameful thing. And yet you need to do that. That's really, really important that you do that. Um, and so I think it, it just, it starts to feel, and this is, it's very closely tied to perfectionism. We get high on all this validation for things that might not actually serve us. Um, and when we say this in the book too, like no one else is going to draw your boundaries for you. They're just going to be clapping when they see you doing all these things. And it's actually really important for you to say today, I, I don't need the clapping. I don't want the clapping. <laughs> I actually want to be in a room by myself. So some early signs that came up over and over again in conversations were, for example, um, you know, if, if the idea of getting physically sick 
suddenly seems appealing because it's like, oh, then I could have a guilt-free day off. That came up over and over. When you start dropping the ball on things that you know you should do. So for example, I needed to go get blood work a couple months ago. And what I realized was, you know, there was, there, it was not like I had to be there at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. They gave me a window in which I could show up. And it was the last day of that window. And I just had been, you know, it was like, well, I had the email and I had the this. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is your health. <laughs> this is a problem. So that was another early sign that I was probably pushing too hard. Um, and then one that really resonates with people is this concept called revenge bedtime procrastination, where you go to bed, you're exhausted, you need to sleep, but you just haven't had any time to decompress or time to just be you. And so you end up going on TikTok or on Instagram or, you know, reading, whatever it is. And actually, and it's totally fine if you do those things at night, it's when it starts to cut into the sleep time that you need, that it becomes it's like, that's a sign that you're not taking breaks during the day. You're not taking care of yourself during the day. So you, you mentioned boundaries um, and sort of learning to draw and respect your own lines and your own boundaries. Um, and you guys talk about that in the book as one of the things you can do. Um, but again, you, you have the, another like great phrase in here that I, I would love to ha- hear you kind of elaborate on a little bit more because it, it was a fairly small section of the book. But you, you say, here's the thing. You have to set and stick to your own boundaries. No one else is going to draw them for you. It takes courage to say no and stick to it without feeling guilty. Behind every no is a deeper yes. Love that. Talk, talk about that phrase. I just, lo- I, I, I mean, I think I love it because it sort of alludes to, <laughs> <laughs> but like that's such an intriguing idea that behind every no is a deeper yes. Because I think everybody, you know, we all need better boundaries. Yes, check. Like we, we all kind of know that, but it's shockingly hard to actually set down, even like really simple ones sometimes. But I think this, this idea of behind every no is a deeper yes. This is a really intriguing way, I think, for us to start to actually feel more confident or get better at setting those boundaries we know we need to set. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we really advise people when you feel this urge to say yes to something, um, really get clear about the opportunity cost. So what are you saying no to? So often, you know, it's someone asks you to take on another project at work and it feels good in the moment to like, yes, I would love to do this. I want to show my potential. I want to like make you like me. A lot of this comes back to people pleasing, but you might be saying no to the actual important client presentation that really is going to advance your career and help the organization in your personal life by saying yes to another social event on Thursday night, you might be saying no to that break you need to feel okay the next day. Um, And so I'm an introvert. I also have so much guilt around not showing up for my friends. And so this has been really useful for me if someone says like, hey, we're going on like an all day thing this weekend and I've had a really busy week. I always now take the time to step back and say like, if I say yes to this, I'm saying no to that glorious, like, get up, have coffee. There's nothing on the schedule that like really is what I need every weekend to just not even to feel energized, just to not become like a wilted shell of myself. <laughs> um, and so it, and it's helpful. And I've also found it, it kind of gives me the strength to say like, hey, you know, this whole day thing is a little too much for me right now, but I'd love to have dinner with you next week. So I think it's a balance of what is, what are you saying no to? And that actually might be really important and you don't want to say no to that. And then also stepping away from seeing the world in like black and white um, or an extreme. So I 
this, I have a huge tendency to do this, which is either I can go to this full day thing with my friends or I can't ever see them. And I'm a terrible friend. Right. And there's no, like, what if we do something else? What if I come for the morning? <laughs> there's so many other options that they're probably going to be totally fine with. Uh, so that's, those are some of the things that I found personally have really helped me. It's hot. It's, it's so hard to say no. It takes a lot of courage and intention and like, work. And, and I think it also, it's a muscle that you can build over time. Yeah. I love that you use the phrase opportunity cost because I, I feel like the, uh, the economists have, have had like a stranglehold on that term. <laughs> and like we psychologists need to take that back because it's just yeah. about, psychological opportunity cost is just as important as financial opportunity cost. Um, yes. I will say but, I'm married to an economist. So <laughs> I love economists. That's where a like, lot of <laughs> they just got to share the wealth, right? It's yeah, a good totally. term. <laughs> yeah. We're taking this one. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I think that's so important. The other thing I want to comment on that, that you sort of alluded to is one of the themes I heard in that was this idea of speed, and that a lot of times when we say when we're we're kind of like yes genies and we just keep saying yes to everything, it's partly because we're just going so fast. And so the, the you like preface this whole your whole explanation with. I like took a moment and I thought about dot, 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 dot. So that it's like the simplest thing in the world, but giving yourself permission to take a moment and actually think about, do I really want to say yes? <laughs> do I just need to say no and like write off the whole thing? Is there some sort of middle ground? So I think that's a really underrated, just the pot, like the pause button. It's the simplest totally. thing in the world. But I think it's, it's so easy nowadays to just constantly be in reactive mode, right? You're getting your personal inbox, your work inbox, your slacks, your messages, your whatever. There's like 15 million social media platforms. Then there's your phone, your someone's and and I definitely feel and this is I think when I when I feel like I'm just in constant whack-a-mole mode, you know, it's like here, 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 here. Yes. That's also it feels like you get this dopamine rush of like, I am crushing it right now. I'm just like a machine. And it's actually like, no, you're a human. It's really bad that you feel like right. a machine. <laughs> you need to chill out. And also like, who cares about this email? You know, like it's not, it's not the most important thing that you should be working on. Um, and so I've noticed in myself it's 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 difficult to step back from that like dopamine rush. And say like, okay, what is actually, what do I need right now? Whether it's a break, whether it's just to actually close my email and focus on this thing. Um, it's, you know, I think the world is not set up to help us do that. Yeah. So speaking of whack-a-mole and go, 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 and, and you mentioned black and white thinking, um, perfectionism is another big one. And this is increasingly, this is one of those, I mean, everyone's talking about burnout, but I feel like I'm hearing people talk about perfectionism more and more and it being something that more and more people are kind of relating to and, and just wanting to, to understand better. Um, and so again, you guys have an, an interesting little angle on perfectionism that I want to kind of pull out and, and chat a little bit about um, for a second. So you, you say one of the most destructive aspects of perfectionism is that it prevents us from being kind to ourselves. We fear that if we relax, we'll become complacent and indulgent. Now, again, this, you guys are like setting up an, a really interesting sort of pairing that I think doesn't get talked enough about with perfectionism, which is you're, you're kind of um, contrasting it with, or setting it next to, um, kindness towards ourselves. Self-compassion is like another, you know, term that's becoming more popular for this, um, for this phenomenon. But I think, and, and, but then you also highlight this, that the fear behind perfectionism, which is we'll become complacent, or it means I'm indulgent or, or kind of this idea that we'll like lose our edge. If I slow down on whack-a-mole, 
my like mm-hmm. moles per minute ratio is going to start declining <laughs> and I'm not going to like be a good person because I, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, but I really do think like when people struggle to work through perfectionism, one of the biggest drivers, one of the biggest obstacles is this very legitimate fear that like, I'm going to lose my edge. Like I'm not going to be as productive or I'm not going to be as successful, or I'm not going to just be the kind of person I should be. If I do this thing that you guys are highlighting, which is like, I could just, I could be kind of nice to myself. Like I could treat myself, like I would treat someone else like a good friend. Right. But no, 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 no. Cause then I'll lose my edge. So how do, in your experience, like how do people start to, so if the solution, to, if one of the solutions to perfectionism is learning to take it easy on yourself and being just a little bit kinder to yourself, how do people successfully kind of work through the fear, this, this strange fear of being kind to yourself? Um, like what that's, yeah. Yeah. Where, like uh, help me with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, one of my favorite quotes in the book is, is in that, in that section and it's from a psychologist and she says, people are afraid that if they stop being a perfectionist, they'll just become a couch potato. That's like a slug that never stops watching TV. Um, and so I think, again, it's this very extremist black and white thinking of like, either I'm running myself into the ground and I'm a good person and I'm successful or I, you know, I'm just like a part, like I've become part of my sofa. Um, it's like, there's a whole world in between those. I think the biggest thing is to really deeply internalize the truth, which is that perfectionism holds you back. It doesn't help you. And so another, we spoke to an expert on perfectionism who says, I wish I could just wave a magic wand because people would see that it's not this perfectionist drive to have everything absolutely perfect all the time that's making them successful. It's everything else. And that drive is like actually impeding their ability to grow, to learn, to seek feedback, all of these things that are crucial to just developing and becoming really great. Um, So yeah, I think some, you know, some convincing researches, researchers looked at athletes and they found that the one, so perfectionism at its core is about a fear of failure. It's not actually about being perfect because perfect, there's no definition for that. Like it's, it can mean, probably mean something really different to you than it does to me. So we define striving and being a high achiever as aiming for a hundred, getting a 94 and feeling good about the effort you put forth. Perfectionism is getting a hundred or aiming for a hundred getting a 99 and then beating yourself up for days about that one question that you missed. And that's, you know, who cares? (laughs) You know, like you actually would be better served by not obsessing over that for three days and moving on and feeling good and learning what you did wrong. And then just continuing to, to like invest in other things. And so athletes that are perfectionists, they're also much more likely to choke. So at the moment, you know, cause there's, it's so, it's this rigid, like if I fail, what is this all for? Like, who am I if I'm not the first? And that is, that causes you to clam up. It causes you to not be open to feedback, to not want other people to help you in something. Um, And so there's, yeah, just like so many examples we share in the book and also academic research and sort of personal stories around. It's just, I think the first step is like, this is not serving you. Um, it's like, if you could stop having this, like, I think it's some of it would have been helpful to me is just checking in with yourself and being like, wouldn't this be better if I didn't have this like constricting feeling in my chest every time that I speak or every time that I email someone, I just wish I could 
this I'll, I will share this example to me was the most illustrative, which is I, for, I've had trouble sleeping for a while. And so I was given like an anti-anxiety pill that I can take as needed if I really can't sleep. And one day I think I had taken the, I usually take half a dose. I'd taken the full dose. And the next day I was very zen because <laughs> I think I saw this medication <laughs> and I was like, I have never been that effective at work in my life because I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like obsessing over every email and I wasn't like hunched over my computer, terrified of what my boss was going to think about the wording of a Slack message. I was just like, boom, boom, boom. This is handled. Everything's great. No, and everything went smoothly. And I think that's what life is like without perfectionism. Mm. Not to be like everyone get on pills, <laughs> but it was, it was just like night and day. I was like, is this how some people live? This is so nice. <laughs> well, and, and but I think you can sort of abstract that. Like to me, when I hear that, the, the more broad lesson there is, you know, we can hear that okay, like I don't have to be a perfectionist and perfectionism is actually holding me back. And you can sort of nod and like intellectually, yes, I understand that. I get that. But like in the moment, that's not how it feels. It feels like yeah. my entire identity is like on the line if I don't phrase this Slack message correctly. And, yeah. and what, what you sort of, what that experience highlights is, well, frankly, the importance of experience, not like rational argumentation. Like you need to somehow figure out a way to give yourself the opportunity to feel it will be okay if I'm not doing this like perfectionistic whack-a-mole thing. And that actually I'm, it's even better if I'm not. So, yeah. so finding ways to give yourself the, the experiential uh, evidence, like actual data that I will be okay. And in fact, better without all this perfectionistic stuff. Um, and that's, I think that's hard, right? Totally. I think it can be helpful to just do something completely outside of your comfort zone. So like, I don't know, take a pottery class or just something that you don't have any, you know, you're like, I don't care if I'm bad at this and, and experience just the joy of doing and also how quickly you pick things up. Um, Cause yeah, I think when we're in those first stages of learning, we have not yet tied our identity to how we're going to do hopefully. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a nice reminder of like, remember when everything was fresh and new and it was just exciting as opposed to terrifying. Yeah. I Playfulness has got to be one of the most underrated sort of adult virtues <laughs> for a yeah, lot of reasons. But I think totally. that's one of them. Like we, you, you, I mean, you see it with kids, but like adults too, like you grow and you learn so much when you're doing something that, that your identity isn't totally like tied down to, and you're free from that. And you can just sort of be in the world and try things. Um, yeah. So important. So I, 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 um, I mean, I feel like we could go on for hours. Talking about this. There's so many good little nuggets in here. Um, but, you know, I think w when I step back and think about, I mean, your guys' work, certainly this book, but um, you guys have an awesome newsletter, which I, I really like every, I think it's every mm -hmm. couple of weeks, right? It comes out every couple of weeks or it's, month, it's, something like so that. So we're not on a strict schedule. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. not perfectionists about it. <laughs> which is a good model. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. a good model. Um, but one of the things, like when I think about the book and your guys' sort of, um, I, I was going to say your guys' message, but actually my point is that in, in some ways, the most powerful thing that I took away from the book is almost kind of like the feeling I got reading in between the lines. Like it's more your tone rather than any specific piece of advice you've given. And, and to sort of illustrate that, I, I hope you'll kind of indulge me for a second for quoting you again, but I've got this, you got the way you guys wrap up the book, I think it's just so like wonderful. And, and so what, what you say here is, 
Big feelings can knock the wind out of us. We wrote this book to prove to ourselves that difficult emotions are not abnormal and that it's possible to emerge from them with newfound wisdom. Allowing ourselves to grieve the path we didn't walk can help us make more meaningful choices down the road. Turning into our strongest envy triggers can give us a clear sense of what we value. And even despair, when the light seems like it's been extinguished forever, can ultimately deepen our sense of self and our empathy for others. There's no shortcut for working through big feelings, and they won't ever fully go away. We all will feel stabbed with regret from time to time, and we all will have days where life feels gloomy and hopeless. But over time, we can eventually get to a place where if a big feeling rears its head, it's okay. Mm. I love it. <laughs> I think, <it's, laughs> I, I think it, what's so important there is, to me anyway, is the idea that like your, these feelings, your emotions, it's not th- that those aren't the problem. <laughs> it's the way we do or don't relate to those feelings and experiences. And so reading behind, like between the lines in, in everything you guys talk through, it, you, you, you just bring such a kind of friendly, like warm, gentle way of, of thinking about and talking about these difficult experiences. And I got to think like, ultimately, that's the most important thing in this book is like your guys's approach, the way you sort of, yeah, the way you, you approach and think about these difficult experiences. There's so much um, kind of gentleness in there that I think is lacking. I think so many people, when they struggle chronically with, with emotional difficulties, it, it's that fragility come in a weird way comes from harshness. Like the re, there's this really harsh attitude and approach towards their feelings. And you guys are modeling sort of the opposite, which is that strength ultimately comes from gentleness. Um, and so I don't, I, I don't know. That's just my sort of like my musings on kind of like bigger picture or what I took from the book. But I think that's such a valuable lesson. And I, I love that you guys are kind of helping turn the tide on that and like giving examples for people um, how, to, how to do that because it's so important. Yeah, oh, that's so nice to hear. Uh, that's kind of exactly what we're always going for. One, one of the things that it sparks for me that I, I think in writing this book have started doing with my friends is I've also noticed you know, people will come to me sometimes and especially after this book came out, now like everyone's coming to yeah. me with yeah, this. Yeah. And, and it's very much like, you know, today I'm feeling bad and, and here's why. You know, it's this whole like rational explanation. I'm just like, I, whatever, you know, like I feel bad some days. I don't know why. I just wake up and it's like, I'm gloomy and that's fine. It doesn't define you as a person. It doesn't mean that you're ungrateful who knows, maybe it's like just some chemicals in your brain that misfired that day. What it's just, it's not, you don't need to hang your whole identity on this feeling and you don't need to construct this whole, like, here's why I deserve to feel bad in this moment. It's like, I feel bad. Have a cup of coffee, you know, just go about your day feeling bad. (laughs) Um, and, and I think that's actually, it's like, there's strength in that, but there's also, it just, it just allows us, to, it's like this, it's part of me and it's, it doesn't define me and it doesn't need to be this huge thing that like weighs on me. It's just, you know, life is, life is hard. It's existing, just sitting and existing. I think anyone who's done extensive meditation can attest that like, it's rough. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, like yep. just sitting, is not a cakewalk. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Well, Liz, this has been wonderful. It's, it's been a real pleasure getting to, to chat with you about this and, and um, 
I mean, I loved your book, but I, I also really appreciate it. Like we just need, we need more of this kind of stuff out in the world as someone who's does a lot of therapy and has talked with a lot of people um, about these sorts of struggles. This is exactly the right kind of messaging. I think that, that we need to hear more of. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've, like I said, when we, we first jumped on this, Molly and I have been fans of yours for a really long time too. So right uh, back at you. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is Big Feelings. Um, it's excellent. I, I highly recommend it. Where else can people go to learn more about, um, about you, both you and Molly and, and your guests' work? I mentioned your, your newsletter is awesome. Um, I love mm-hmm. it. And the infrequentness of it is actually kind of nice because it's this <laughs> unexpected little delight whenever it shows up. Um, but yeah, where's the, be- where's the best place for people to go to, to learn more about you? Yeah, uh, lizandmolly.com. So Molly's M-O-L-L-I-E. Um, and then we're also on Instagram, Twitter, you know, LinkedIn, wherever. I think the best place is just the website and then you can branch out into whatever platforms you like. 